Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. The Black Madonna went from rural Kentucky, selling mixtapes out of her car at illegal raves as a young teenager, to the full-time talent booker at the iconic Chicago house and techno club Smart Bar. One of the most respected DJs and producers working today, she's a passionate and vocal champion of positive change with a global perspective, speaking openly about attitudes to women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community both on and off the dance floor. In her lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, she talked with Lauren Martin about all of this and more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Please help me welcome the Black Madonna. Hello. I'm very much enjoying the cape with the sofa. It's like ultimate relaxation. My mother would really approve of this. She's a cape woman. The first time I went to Europe, my mother was like, oh, wait, before you go, I have to give you something. (laughs) And she gave me this enormous cape. She was like, you can't go to Europe without this. And so now I'm a cape woman. I'm fulfilling my destiny and completely turning into my mother before the age of 40. (laughs) I think we're pretty much all on the way there already, but thank you very much for joining us. I introduced you as somebody who's synonymous with Chicago, but you're not from Chicago. Where are you from? I am from Kentucky in America. My hometown is Jackson, Kentucky, uh, but I was born in Lexington, Kentucky because Jackson is so small that it doesn't have a hospital. My dad is a pretty well-regarded blues musician named Nick Stump, and then my mom and my stepdad are just both incredible record nerds and um well we went crazy for prince i was like and i was like six or so (laughs) but i mean it was like prince everything in our house uh and my mother was a crazy stevie wonder fan i mean just insane so i heard a lot of that kind of thing in the house and then when my mother married my stepdad roger who is one of the great unsung collectors (laughs) in the history of record nerddom he changed our lives forever in, in many ways, um, not just musically, but in general. But Roger really brought in uh, electronic music into our family, and that was a, a, a big, huge, life-changing thing, because I was about 10 when they got together, and that was when we started to listen to the Pet Shop Boys and New Order, and um, eventually he introduced me to the KLF. And I think my brain was right at that age where, where it just soaks up music and the music of your adolescence becomes the, the music of your whole life. And, and for me, I was extremely lucky to hear the things that I, that I heard. Oh, and I was I, maybe 12 or t- 10, 10. I can remember Roger giving my, me my first copy of Paul's Boutique. You know, and I'm in Kentucky in this little school with all these morons that love Debbie Gibson and, 
and Tiffany and shit like that. And I mean, I was totally ostracized. I mean, I'm getting dropped off at this school. All these nice kids that have health insurance and, and new shoes and things like this. And I'm getting dropped off in a Chevette with public enemy stickers on the back of it. And, you know, at the time it was just so devastating because everybody hated my guts and wanted me to die. But now I look back at it and I'm like, oh my God, my parents were so great. You know, thank God they stuck with me and turned me into a little mutant. I mean, it was worth it was it was worth all those years of hell. Well, you didn't stay there for very long, did you? Because you made a point of leaving Kentucky and taking on like the mixtape legacy, didn't you? You got involved in the rave scene at like 14 years old. Yeah. So I'm not kidding you when I say that I heard about the rave scene on a show called Beverly Hills 90210. And then also uh, there was a show called Club MTV, which later became The Grind. But Club MTV, for a, a brief and shining moment, I think it was filmed in the Palladium and downtown Julie Brown was the host. A lot of those kind of breakthrough 90s British house crossover records, and some of them were Belgian stuff, were played on that show. And even things like Latour, People Are Still Having Sex, which probably none of you all remember. But there were these kind of like club hits that, that crossed over and... They would have dancers, and but then I heard about raves on 90210, and then when I got back to Kentucky, I had this job in a coffee shop, and some kids that were graduating high school from the high school I was getting ready to start in the fall broke me out of the house that I was in and drove me an hour and a half north to a party in Cincinnati called Sonic 2, as in Sonic the Hedgehog. And you could play Sonic the Hedgehog on this big screen, and of course everybody was on acid and stuff. And the second that I got there, I knew I was done. I mean, I can remember them having to peel me off this speaker, and I remember exactly what I was wearing. And this moment, what of were life, you wearing? I was wearing, uh, I was wearing a mini skirt, black and white striped Alice in Wonderland tights, and a blue velvet tuxedo jacket. And I had uh, purple hair shaved off underneath and pulled up into this beehive thing. It was a really a look. Was it? Was it almost like the candy raver type aesthetic that was going that, on? It didn't or? exist yet. Um, at this point, everybody wanted to be like Lady Miss Gear. That was. It was more of that kind of like club kid, New York, nineteen ninety. More fab than candy. Psychedelic. Very, very like knockoff poochie print tights and stuff like that, and big Alice headbands and things, and. Um, I can remember them physically having to pull me out of there and like, I never want to go home again. I can't go back to high school. I don't want to do this. And like, just completely devastated that I could not go to this world forever. And as it turned out, actually, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I went to high school for one year. I got all A's and F's. And it was completely miserable at the time. I mean, the bullying at this point, I, I, I was so bad that I had a teacher that made me take my classes in his office so that class could continue without disruption. So I went to raves during my first high school year. I made two friends in high school or three friends who I still have to this day. It, it, that's more than most do, to be honest, from high right. school. So that's who, good. who were also ravers. And then there, this little group of us um, at that time got involved in what I now understand to be the nucleus of the North American rave scene. 
at the very, the very, very, I mean, the literal first parties that existed. I would love to talk about the, the rave scene in the Midwest at that point, because I think people who are familiar with American dance music tropes think of the big cities like Chicago, Detroit, New York. Uh, they have a sense of like hip hop in LA and it's very like a coastal, not necessarily metropolitan, but large city kind of sounds that emit from that. But there were millions of people in between those coasts and there are vast swathes of states and places to travel and raves that happened in the Midwest that were very distinct from that, had their own flavour. Could you talk about how they were different and what about it attracted you to it? Well, the thing to remember about the Midwest rave scene is that Chicago and Detroit are in the Midwest. I say that to, to say this, which is that for the same reason that if you're from the UK you pr and you grew up in the 90s, you probably went to a lot of raves out in fields. We had a lot of those too because we have a lot of fields in the Midwest and a lot of farms and a lot of kids that had college money that they needed to blow on something stupid. And um, there are a lot of warehouses in the Midwest because of manufacturing. So what happened was that after about 1992... There really weren't enough people that each city would have a party each weekend. What would happen was that one city in what we loosely call the Midwest, but Kentucky really isn't the Midwest, it's sort of the Mid-South or, I don't know, Southeast, but this loose belt of cities going down to Nashville and Memphis and up to St. Louis and Chicago and Minneapolis and... Um, Basically, anywhere that wasn't New York or, or whatever, that you could drive five or six hours between them all became this kind of connection. And there was actually an alliance for a while beca called, I think, Gathering of the Vibe. Or I, I mean, <sighs> It sounds like you just made that up on the no, spot, to be fair. I, it's, it's some, it's, I think that's what it was called, Gathering of the Vibe. It was all the different promoters that would kind of like trade information and promotional routes and support and so we would all drive I mean we were thousands of people every weekend and I did so largely from 1994 to 1998 um, I spent about four years not only attending raves but selling mixtapes at raves because the internet wasn't good enough to download a DJ mix so if you wanted to hear a DJ mix, you either had to go to a rave or buy a tape from me or one of maybe three or four other people. And uh, the result of that was that I, I got to watch a magic, irreplaceable moment in American dance music culture unfold in a way that almost no one else did. And it was, I mean, I got to see the first Plastic Man live performance ever and then sleep on his floor afterwards. And I got to see Derek Carter when he first broke through as this revelation in just the, the technique of playing house records. And I got to see Aphex Twin in the woods in Wisconsin. And I got to stand three feet from Daft Punk on two hits of acid <laughs> without their helmets and watch them do this live performance. And... I mean, all of these things, because I worked, that was how I made my money. And there was really only one or two a weekend, so basically I got to see it all. And it was an experience that will never be duplicated. I mean, a lot of it was hard and sad, and a lot of those people who did get 
super involved in drugs and stuff, just didn't make it out. And I'm lucky that I had a pretty healthy family and, you know, never really got too wild. But in general, I feel extremely, it was just right place at the right time. I'm wondering about, we talk about like the values and the ideas and the kind of the politics of being involved in something that's special at that kind of time. I know that people aren't born with values and ideas. They're like, they're developed, they're grown over time. Can you remember something that happened in that scene that kind of made you stop feeling like the teenage girl from Kentucky and feel like somebody that something radical was happening and there were ideas developing within you that kind of made you who you are? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky because the person that really became my, as, as much as you can say this, my, my parent in that world is a guy named J.J. Hawes. And J.J. at the time ran the computer lab at the University of Kentucky, which had the internet. <laughs> and the internet was really, as it was being built, like I can remember him being like, they're building this thing, it's called the web. <laughs> And someday you're not going to have to type in 75 numbers and know exactly where you're going to get where you're, you to get the information you want. But the people in that community that were kind of the net ravers, there was a really heavy philosophical component. And if you look online, there's a few people that are starting to really scan them in, but like rave zines were like a huge thing. And I have a ton of them too. And there was this kind of psychedelic utopian and maybe in some ways naive aspect of the things that we believed we were a part of at the time. I look back at it now and I I know that raves were much more dangerous than I imagined them to be. Some of that was my teenage hopefulness. Um, but there was always a heavy a heavy political component. I mean, we we all came right out of... Uh, we talked about things like temporary autonomous zones and we were all students of the KLF and there was a, a, a very um, kind of friendly anarchist rave utopian. It was always an aspect of it. I don't know that we were good at acknowledging the problems that were in our scene. I think we thought of ourselves as outside of the world and of course, dance music is in the world. <laughs> um, dance music is on earth, which means <laughs> that it has sexism and racism and classism and every other ism, and it's everywhere. It's in every club, it's in every rave. There's no, there's no escaping it, and it's something that you, you know, if you really do care about it, you have to tangle with it. But at the time, we were very blissfully unaware. And for the most part, I have to say, Things were pretty peaceful. I mean, I can remember the first time that there was a drug overdose at a rave in the Midwest. And it was a big fucking deal. And it was like, we have to talk about this. There are real drugs here now. Somebody got hurt. And it was, I mean, there was massive conversations about it. And the girl that overdosed came back and actually spoke to everybody on this, this one message board. And it was like someone was harmed at a party. Can you imagine this now? You know, it's like, oh, how many kids died at, you know, Mega Rave XYZ this weekend? You know, I mean, within three or four years, it was just so far the opposite. It was like, 
you know, like when there was the big, huge GHB explosion in the late 90s in the rave scene. I mean, these parties in, in, in the Midwest came with a body count at, by a certain point, And there were kids that died constantly. And like any scene, people start with one thing and they graduate to another. And then eventually people were doing heroin and all of those things happened. People went from all the lovey-dovey stuff to a certain component, graduated up, and then things got very, very dark. I would say late 90s, early 2000s. And that's when I left and went to college. It sounds like the music, uh, the idealism of that time is really contrasted with the reality of it. And I don't like to use the phrase music as escapism, but was there an, was there an element of that once that reality kicked in, that the music was more of a, a, like a more important vehicle than ever? In the beginning, it really wasn't even that much escapism. I mean, you have to remember, this is before the world was ending. Bill Clinton was president. MTV still showed videos. <laughs> Income was going up in America, not down. People had jobs. I mean, this sense of like, and there were bad things that happened, of course. But I mean, there really was kind of a like, in general, America was much more hopeful at the time. Um, this was also shortly after the fall of communism. There was a lot of kind of idealistic stuff floating around about that and all of this with the it was just a different time uh, so it was more I, as much as anything i think the rave scene was kind of an outgrowth of this maybe <laughs> delusional <laughs> delusional sense of and and false sense of optimism that we had in the end of what i would call that era once we get to 97 98 99 at that point the drugs got hard and the music got extremely shitty. And it was kind of like dark times. Uh, then American techno starts creeping in more. I mean, proper Detroit techno and proper Chicago house kind of were slow to seep in. At first, we were all really duplicating, I think, what we imagined as this kind of summer of love thing. It's like, oh, it's finally come here and get a whistle and everything's neon and have smart drinks and take 35 hits of acid and all this kind of stuff. So what happened after the whistles? Was there an after the whistles? So, yeah, <laughs> uh, several things happened. Real techno started coming in. You would see, like, Claude Young at raves and Juan Atkins, and that was like, holy shit. Like, seeing Jeff Mills at a rave, like, you know, I'm just white girl from the mountains in eastern Kentucky and I walk into a rave and it's fucking Jeff Mills and I don't know you know it's like what is he doing <laughs> um so that started to happen and then the thing that really completely blew my mind and I can remember exactly where I was I was 18 years old I was at a party called Satori in Cincinnati Ohio and I'm gonna admit it somebody gave me a very strong hit of LSD and I walked into what they said was the jungle room, and I thought that it was going to have, like, plants and stuff. <laughs> I'm like, cool. I could, it sounds great. I need to chill out, man. <laughs> um, okay, so when you left Kentucky and that particular scene, how did you start mixing records? Because we've heard a lot about the influence, the fashion, the humour, the politics, the values. When did you get to the point where you thought, I kind of want to do this? Well, that actually still happened when I was in Kentucky. 
Um, I started, as a lot of people do, on college radio. Uh, there was a very terrible college radio station at the University of Louisville called WLCV, 1390 AM, which no longer exists, and it broadcasts on about a three-block ratio. The main selling point of this radio station was that they had speakers in the Student Activity Center, and they had turntables. And as with many jobs that I have had, I went in and kind of offered to do anything, and within a month and a half had basically stormed the castle and took over the whole thing. And I was the general manager immediately. And so when the school would shut down for spring break, they would just put on a playlist and everybody would leave. But um, I was, uh, because I worked there, I, I was able to stay on campus over spring break and I had keys to the station. And right when I started college, my my mother, God bless her, I had been at my grandmother's house and I was asleep on the couch and having one of those great naps that you can only have on your grandmother's couch. And my mother woke me up from this dead sleep holding a Roger and Zap record. And I was like, what? <laughs> what do you want? And she's like, do you want this? And I was like, yes, but where did this come from? And we're out in the, way out in the country. And she's like, oh, I was at this... Um, I was at this junk store and there was a whole box of these. I think they belonged to some DJ and they all had this guy's name on them and they were from the late 70s and early 80s. And she's like, do you want to go back and look? And we went back and found this entire DJ's from clearly from Ohio, which is actually a really big center for funk in America, Dayton in particular, Dayton and Cincinnati. And we found some Ohio funk DJ's entire record collection. How big was the collection? Do you remember? Uh, it had to be three or 400 pieces. At first, we were pulling sections of it out one at a time because they'd been mixed in with other just vinyl stuff. But then the guy who ran the place, or, or lady, I can't remember, but they said, oh, we have a barn. <laughs> a barn of records. A barn of records outside of Somerset, Kentucky. And there we found the complete collection. And we got it into pieces over time. I would say probably a thousand records, all marked and not particularly well cared for, but not particularly damaged either. I mean, very playable. So I started my college radio career with those, but I didn't know how to DJ. And I was trying to do stuff that even, I, I, the process of learning how to mix soul and disco and unsequenced records is something that you can spend your whole life doing. It's, it, it, it makes regular, normal DJing with house and techno, it's, that's like, like training wheels compared to playing those kind of records artfully on a technical level. And, but I started off trying to play those and one day on the air I accidentally mixed two records together what do you mean accidentally? I pushed the crossfader open and, and they were on. And one was Outcast, I'll Call Before I Come, and the other one was Isley Brothers Between the Sheets. <laughs> and it's a great mix now if you try to do it yourself. And I was like, wait, I get it. And then the one fateful spring break where everyone was gone, I put on the playlist and I brought up the speakers on audition and I DJed for a week straight. 12 hours a day and would like go pee and get a slice of pizza and come back. And then after that, uh, I bought turntables and uh, had them in my dorm room, in inside my room. And um, 
I uh, within oh I don't know six months I was playing professionally. I it was immediately I was like this is it. Okay, why did you want to move to Chicago? I did not want to move to Chicago. Why did you not want to move to Chicago? Because <laughs> it's cold. It is fast. And people are not as friendly as they are in Kentucky. And because I was afraid and I thought everybody was mean and unfriendly. And now when I go home to Kentucky, everybody's like, what happened to you? (laughs) Your attitude's a little different. So what happened, though, is that one of the guys that used to be my competition in the mixtape hustle started a label group called Dust Tracks which became 45 labels. And actually, Paul Johnson, who I'm playing with tonight, was the first official A&R for Dust Tracks. And I think it's still technically his imprint. But a guy, uh, a a very interesting man named Radek Haverstruck, white Polish guy from Chicago, lived in a house with his family. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe at the time the Dust Tracks was being founded, Radek was actually in college to become a cop. And he lived in this big multi-generational family. The family owned a bakery. And Dust Tracks started because Reddick was at a party and he heard the record work that motherfucker. <laughs> and was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And he became friends with Paul. And they put out the first Dust Tracks releases. Dust Tracks became a label group. Then it became a distributor. And then it became a digital distributor. And at the time that Dust Tracks was making the jump to digital and we had no idea what we were doing, they brought me in to try to figure out how to turn records into MP3s and sell them. And I did. So my competition from the mixtape hustle wouldn't leave me alone. And he was like, you're the only one that can do this job. And... uh, Finally, I gave in and decided to do it, and I moved into this house with him, and um, I lived in the basement, and it flooded all the time. Eventually, as the years went on, I made it up into the penthouse of of this house called West Eddie, but uh, it was really, a, uh, the house itself was very magical. A lot of incredible things happened there. We, I remember when Daft Punk was in town, Reddick used to talk about how he knew Daft Punk, and it was one of those things that we always kind of assumed was bullshit until they pulled their tour bus up in front of West Eddie <laughs> when they were there for Lollapalooza. And Reddick called me for, at work and said, I need you to come home and start cooking. And I was like, why? And he's like, because Daft Punk is here and we're going to have a barbecue. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, har har. And, put that, you know. and he calls back, he's like, get home now and stop at the store and get two bags of potatoes, and whatever it is you use to make that macaroni and cheese, and we're going to make chicken on the grill. Daft Punk is here right now. Their tour bus is here. Get home. And I went home, and lo and behold, Daft Punk was in my fucking backyard. So that's how I got to... This was right after I moved to Chicago. It was one of the most astounding things that's ever happened to me my whole life. Anyway, so I worked there for a while, and then I had a little like meltdown. I was like, I don't want to do dance music anymore. And I went to write... Um, I went and took a very terrible copywriting job for two years in a windowless office, and I wrote about women's underwear, things like Spanx and uh, corsets and girdles, and it was for this store that sold all this, and so I would write these extremely technical 
descriptions of this. And then one day, Smart Bar called. And um, I can remember my friend Jason Garden and I in the club one night before we worked there, we said, wouldn't it be great if we took over Smart Bar someday? <laughs> and uh, one day, one of my old coworkers from Dustrax called me and he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And he goes, what do you do for a living right now? <laughs> and I said, I'm writing about women's underwear. And he's like, hey, uh, I want you to come put in a job application at Smart Bar. And I was like, okay. And he goes, and by the way, uh, don't tell anybody this, but I'm leaving next year. And um, when I do, you'll probably take over the whole thing. And I was like, what? And um, <laughs> so I went in and I sat down with Joe. And I can say in my entire life, in the whole history of people that I've met, there's a, a tiny handful that I knew that, you know, this person is going to be in your life and and change it forever. And the minute I sat down with Joe, I, I knew that would happen. And I knew at first I was going to do the assistant job, which is, you know, a job typically done by people in their 20s. And at this point, I'm 35 or whatever. <laughs> But I was willing to do anything, and and I did. I I did. I mean, I can. When I started, I would scrape gum out of the DJ booth with my fingernails, and I mean, <laughs> I really would. I would do anything. I I wanted so much to be a part of this, and then eventually, Nate did move on, and I stepped in as the the buyer for the club, and I was the first woman buyer in 30 years, and overnight my life changed. I'm very curious to know about you've. You've said before that you didn't really play outside the States for at least the first 10 years of you DJing much. Oh, 15. F 10, 15. Okay. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a passport three years ago. Wow. I'm curious about this because I think it's very interesting. Part of the reason why I wanted people to understand like the depth to which you were involved in various parts of the US like original rave scene is that having played for so many years, you know, for better or worse, in different places around the States, and having not really travelled out of the States, you had a really intimate knowledge of the widespread and varied dance music culture in the States. And when you became a buyer, did that become part of the idea of Smart Bar? Like, this is not just to bring in people from abroad, but to celebrate what's actually here and what is maybe undervalued? Yeah, that was, that was always it. Number one, the second... I, I mean, I waited for this job... And I, I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted, number one, you couldn't be a resident unless you were like a special guest, unless you lived in Chicago. There was no, there was no being a resident from afar. Also, we kind of went in and it was like core, old school, American, Midwest, techno and house, period. No bullshit, no burner techno, None of that, like, and that's all fine. But as far as the identity of the club, and the club, the club is wonderful because anyone can play there. If you play dubstep, you can come to Smart Bar, and we are a perfect venue for that. If you play hardcore, you can come with anything. You can the the club itself is a blank slate, and we that's why so many people have passed through those gates. But as far as the residence program was concerned, I wanted to identify and reinstate the value of North American house music and North American techno in the most serious, legitimate, 
underground way that we were able to do that. And not only that, not only people that we liked what they were playing, but people who were involved in the feeding and caring of the underground scene. We put emphasis on people that had their own underground events. We did something at the time, which I caught an enormous amount of shit for, but um, we went through and we decided we were going to have a more diverse residence program. It wasn't just going to be men. And now dance music talks about this kind of stuff all the time ago. But you have to understand, four years ago, the shit that I caught for what I did in Chicago, you cannot imagine. I mean, whole threads on Facebook. Who does she think she is? You, what, I can't DJ there anymore if I have my own, if, if, if I'm not, like, making records? You know, it's like every other club on earth is mostly DJs who are also producing. You know, we set some standards and values, and if you were going to be a DJ who was just a selector, you had to be so fucking good, you had to be Mike Servito. You know, you had to be that person. Or you know, Derek Carter doesn't make many records anymore. He's Derek fucking Carter. And I think at the time, there was this sense in America, in dance music in general, that it was kind of like, if you were just like a bro in the scene, that you everybody got a turn. And I didn't have that sense at all. I was like, you know what? I got one shot at this. And if dance music is really a meritocracy... <laughs> which is what you guys have been telling me the whole time and why I'm not allowed to play this and that. Well, you know, it's just not going to work. It's a meritocracy. We don't have a place for you here. This isn't marketable. This guy has more experience, X, Y, Z. Okay, if you want dance music to be a meritocracy, Smart Bar is a meritocracy now. Then what? And people lost their fucking shit. And then all of a sudden, things started to change. You started to see Smart Bar in the press. And people really the way that I felt about it. And I started to tour at the same time. The day that I got the, the day that I moved my stuff into my desk, I moved from one desk over to the other when I became the buyer. I used to come in really early before anybody. Joe remembers this. Uh, it would be me and maybe the accountant. And this person who had kind of been talking to me about coming to Europe said, hey, can you, can I call you? And I was like, okay. And nothing had happened. I mean, like, they're, she was like, do you want to come to Europe someday? And then we just kind of never really talked about it again. I submitted a mix for this one series and nothing happened. So the day that I moved my desk over to the new job, she called me and said, I got you your first job in Europe. And I said, okay, what is it? And she goes, you're going to play at Panorama Bar. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, you need to get a passport. I was like, a passport? She's like, yeah, no, this is in like two and a half months. You need to get a passport right now. And so my time as the buyer at Smart Bar and my time as a touring DJ kind of happened in tandem. And I think we couldn't have planned it any better, but it became this sort of circular thing where because people would listen to what I had to say as a DJ, they wanted to see what we were doing in Smart Bar and even when it was time for me to step out of the position and hand it over to my assistant, who is now the buyer, Jason Garden, who is an accomplished DJ and producer in his own right, Joe stuck with me and, and we still have this close relationship. And now, now I work with the club in different ways. But at the time to go from this windowless office to all of this in a period of just a few months, I mean, it was very... It was disorienting. 
You're quite become quite known for a brief, like what's been dubbed like a manifesto of just like thoughts and feelings about dance music. But one particular line in it, just the last sentence of it is, dance music does not need more of the status quo. And I'm curious, having traveled around the US, traveled around the world in recent years now that you've got a passport, um, what have you noticed as the contemporary status quo and what do we need less of it? What needs to be more radical about it? Well, one thing I would say is that if you're a white person in dance music, you need to figure out how to help the people and put on the people that inspire you. And they are most likely not white people. <laughs> I think being cognizant of that and the idea of using whatever influence, for me, I would say this is a big thing, is to try to offset any kind of interest or privilege I have and those are, you know, privilege is a word that is thrown around a lot. And I don't mean to become too deeply philosophical about this other than to say, you know, I think we all need to think about doing what's right. And, like, let's just take this out of, like, pure politics and philosophy and just talk about humanity and just think about what's doing, what's the right thing to do. And I, I, I get this wrong all the time, but I have tried really hard to do better and to to pay my debt to the people that have given me so much. And it's always a process and I'm always trying to get better. But like, for example, when I did the the record that sampled the, the crowd on the Rahan video, rather than just sample it, we talked to Rahan, we made sure it was okay, and we put him on the other side of the record and then I made him a resident at Smart Bar. And that's a, an example of a time where I felt like I got it right because he was my hero and but people were paying attention to the record that I made instead of him I mean him too but like I felt like it wouldn't be right to just do this record that was a tribute to him and not literally pay tribute to him and that's an example of a time where I I I felt like that was how I want to do things there are many times that I have not gotten it right but the status quo is always going to lean, you know, white and affluent and whatever. And I think anytime you can do your best to pay back the people that create this thing that we love. I, I do strongly believe that dance music is for everyone. I know from my personal relationship with many of the people that we enshrine in the history of dance music, that those people are proud of the way that, that house music and, and things like that, or many of them, the people that I know are proud of the way that house music truly is global. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> but if it's global, we need to think about what we can do as a planet for the people in Chicago who created this music. And I think anything you do is good. Um, for me, the way that I designed the residence program at Smart Bar, that was one thing, was just to try to think a little bit more about another word that's overused is diversity, but just to, like... I think as much as anything, I just wanted to have a lot of different viewpoints. And I felt that it would affect the club in a positive way and re reflect our city more accurately. And so it wasn't just a matter of like theoretically doing the right thing. It was a matter of making the club better. And I think that happened. But I think we all need to be thinking about things like conservation. <laughs> uh, if we really care about house music, most of you all here are, are young folks. And one thing that we all need to be mindful of as that first generation of people in house music are getting older is is caring for them and 
conserving their legacies. I have been honored and privileged to work with the Frankie Knuckles Foundation uh, with Joe also. And it's a nonprofit organization that has several missions. Uh, one of them is to, to care for and expand Frankie's global message as an ambassador of house music. But some of it is just about archival stuff. Sections of our organization have worked to just preserve his record collection. Some of it is simple stuff like, like making sure that people are not abusing his likeness. And I think that when we talk about, you know, we don't need more of the status quo, the status quo has shifted <laughs> in dance music. And, and some of that just comes with being, you know, we're a bigger pool now. But whatever your piece is, whatever thing you decide to do, for me, it means the stuff that I do at Smart Bar and the stuff that I've done with the foundation and, and other things. Um, I mean, even things like I'm pretty active uh, in taking parts of my DJ fee and donating them to several things like uh, I have a, a few pet causes, but one of them is bailing out protesters in Chicago. All of those things are things where I just kind of think that that's my job to pay back into, into the community that has given us so much. But each person can do that in their own way. And it doesn't have to be a hyper-political message. <laughs> it can just be a message of humanity and empathy and whatever way works for you. We've, we've talked a lot about your work, your ideas. I'd really like to talk about your music, your own music. I think the romantic sincerity with which you do everything is also in your own sound. And I think that personally you play very deliberately with the genre in a very interesting way. And disco seems like the lovely gold thread through a lot of it. So I'm working right now on a new project and I've kind of returned to an older way of making things and I, I have like, I'm working with live musicians to make disco and it's a much slower, uh, more difficult, much rending of clothing and pulling of hair. But uh, all of that started for me when I shifted, when I first started making records, it was, I, I made techno under a different name. It wasn't very good. It was very normal kind of minimal bloopy bloopy stuff. And um, the big turning point for me came when I got really super into metro area, <laughs> as I'm sure many people are. And I thought, oh, I wish I could make a record like that. And of course, I failed disastrously. But I did start to make real disco and to write these sort of more complicated 20-piece arrangements with strings and things like this. And now I'm doing it all with live stuff. And Davide Rossi, who is the string arranger for like Rooksop and Goldfrap and a lot of people. And I finally got my little orchestra that I always wanted. And a guy named Christopher LaBarbera, who is the jazz musician, John LaBarbera's son. Um, and I've been working with Rupert Murray, who is my longtime friend and, and partner to kind of return to an older way of doing things. But the first time that I took a, a step out into this world was uh, with the first record on Argo and um, a song called A Jealous Heart Never Rests. And this was the record that kind of sent me to Europe. Um, and it was also my first foray into making disco a little bit more like the way that people used to make it. Could you tell everybody how you started to make that on your own? Because I know originally, right at the start, you were quite slavish about doing everything yourself. 
well, so I used to have a production partner and we stopped working together. And afterwards, I remember that I had said something on Facebook and he made a little jab at me and said to another guy on, on, on Facebook, hey, so-and-so, why don't you go help her make a track? And I thought, I am never going to be in that position again. I am never working with anyone. I am definitely not working with a man. And for many years, I did not. I wouldn't even let a guy mix it down. I wouldn't let anyone touch it until it was time for it to go to the, till it went to be pressed to a record. I mean, it was, I mean, it's, you know, it's a story as old as time. Uh, I mean, it's just the most like, oh, it it was very, it was a very sensitive topic for me. And so I was like, well, that's over and my career has failed. And so I'm going to make these records that sound exactly like what I want and no one's going to touch them. And if they sit on SoundCloud forever and collect dust, then that's fine. Everybody can eat it. But I will have at least made records that I care about. And that's when I made all the records that anybody ever cared about. And for the record, they did sit on SoundCloud for like three years. I mean, they did. You used to be able to download the master to this off of SoundCloud. Um, it, It was really very... These were not desirable. I mean, I, at the time that I made this was really in the when we were in the throes of kind of drug chug ketamine techno, and you know I couldn't have made anything that was more oppositional to this kind of phony euphoric bro shit. It took me so long to get any credit for for the things that I did. Just working in a duo it was always assumed that I don't know what it was assumed, but it wasn't that I was the one driving anything. And and I, I feel very lucky to have the production partner that I have now, Rupert Murray, who also works for um, Sound Investment, who handles all the uh, sound for Smart Bar in Chicago. And he's just the best guy in the world. And, you know, we share a brain. And I'm so lucky to have him because he's the opposite of all of that. But I don't think that I would have felt comfortable reaching out to work with other people until I had passed that thing where people knew that I would stand on my own merits because there was a period of time where they didn't know. What do you still consider a radical idea? Oh, I don't know if there are any radical ideas. Um, if they, I mean, if they are, there are a lot of radical ideas probably in dance music, but I'm not very interested in them. I'm not, I mean, I am glad that things like experimental music exist and I have learned to appreciate those things and I have profound respect for people who are pushing the margins, but as a listener, I don't usually enjoy experimental music. I think that most musical experiments fail (laughs) and a very few of them become things that work and I'm a very pragmatic DJ and a very pragmatic producer. I make records that make people want to go on the floor and dance. And I DJ in such a way as to cause the most reaction from people. And it's in a diplomatic way. It's not to say that I will, that I will choose the most low-hanging fruit. Uh, not at all. But 
I am interested in provoking an explicit set of responses from people. And certain kinds of records do that. I know that there are people who want to do other things, and I respect them. And those are the people who will make the next Acid House. And when that thing happens and it works, I will play it. Techno itself, like Acid House, those things were all, ex the, the, those are experiments, and those experiments are ongoing. And I'm glad that they, they happen. But as far as radical ideas, I am deeply pragmatic. I want records that achieve a very certain, I want you to feel a certain way. I want the room to look a certain way. I want you to have a certain set of feelings. I want to be in control of those things. And I want, I want to cross a lot of territory. I want to tell the story of the world. And I want you to come along for it. <laughs> and I want, you to, I want you to feel, a, a, I want you to feel a certain way. And over 20 years of DJing and almost 20 years and however many years of producing, I'm finally starting to understand how that, how that works. But for me, I am not radical. I am, I am pure pragmatism. I think that's a pretty strong sentiment to end on. So thank you very much, the Black Madonna. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. Uh, the lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff. It's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. But if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at Red Bull Music Academy dot com. <laughs>